Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is from Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Then he brought back me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from the below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced uh, east. The water was flowing down from below south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was twinkling out on the south side. Going on the eastward with a measuring line in his hand, The man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river. That I could not, that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, and the water becomes fresh, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, and the water of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From the end and to the end glame, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on, all, and on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail and they will bear fruit, fresh fruit, every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruits will be for food, and their leaves for healing. The New Testament reading is from Luke 13, 22 to 30. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, 
and you taught in our streets. But, he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Great to be together. I don't know if you consider it rude or not to introduce yourself to people you already know. That's a bit of the predicament I feel like here because in, in some ways, we know each other. If we haven't met personally, my name is Brandon. I'm the church planter down in Norwalk, and I've been very grateful to be a part of your ministry team. You've been praying for us and supporting us for over a year now. I've been meeting every Tuesday morning here at the church building. And so in many ways, we know each other, but yet we may have not met personally. So it's great to be with you and great to have this chance to look at God's word together. We are going to be in Luke chapter 13. It'd be helpful for me and I think helpful for you as well if you can have that passage in front of you. And so you can have it in the program there. We will look a little bit in the surrounding context of that chapter as well. So if you want to pull it up in your Bible or use the Bible in the pew there, it's on page 819. Well, as we give our attention to God's word, let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive and a living word. And we thank you that by your spirit, you would open our ears and our hearts to hear and to believe. And so we pray that you would transform us by your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think you probably know the expression, the few, the proud. Oh, Pastor Sheldon would be disappointed. The few, the proud, the Marines. The few, the proud, the Marines. You know, it's an appropriate saying that when you meet someone who is a soldier, you feel proud that they've dedicated themselves to, to train and to commit and to sacrifice for others. And in a way, the, the fewer, the more proud. Those who have trained more, served longer, sacrificed the most. You see, we want the few because they're able and willing to do things that the many could not so that the many don't have to. But what if you applied that same saying to Christianity? How would you feel about the few, the proud, the Christians? You know, I think sometimes if we're honest, it might seem like Christians are the few and the proud. And so we have expressions like the holy huddle. And so this idea that it's proud to be on the inside, all too ready to treat everyone else like an outsider. This attitude, it can look like entitlement. And of course, we're the few because only a few of us are really taking God seriously. Well, I hope we can avoid that type of thinking. We don't want to be that type of few. But even so, I think we will struggle to know how to feel about the experience of being a Christian where it does seem like we are the few. And so you might struggle and wonder why your friends and your neighbors don't seem to be all that interested in learning about Jesus. 
Or personally, you might carry a lot of sadness and concern for loved ones who have drifted away or just haven't moved closer after years of prayer. So will those who are saved from your family or from your community be few? You know, that type of question is a very personal question for me. I'm a church planter, and so of course I know it's going to be slow and challenging, but should I expect success? Or will those who are saved in Norwalk be few? And even as a church together or in general, it does feel and look like that we're living in an increasingly kind of post-Christian world, maybe even less Christian. And so the church might have looked more successful or influential in the past, maybe in good ways or bad, but increasingly the church is looking smaller, weaker, less influence. And so how should we feel about that? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might actually resonate with that assessment. What's the big deal about Christianity? It seems like such a small player. Well, if you put it all together, I think we have this challenge before us of knowing how to process and to deal with this question of the few. Is it okay that there are few? Should we be content or ashamed? Or shouldn't there be more than a few? Should there be many? And so should we be disappointed or highly expectant? You see, these are big and important questions in terms of how we relate to Jesus and what God's doing in the world through him. And so it's really great and good for us that in our passage this morning from Luke chapter 13, this exact question gets posed to Jesus. Jesus, what is the truth? How successful will your salvation be? Will those who are saved be few? You know, questions and answers from Jesus, it's a great way to get to know him and to understand what he's about. But one of the challenges with Q&A time with Jesus is that often it can be surprising, both in the answers given and in Jesus' ability and propensity to turn the question around, to switch spots, to then question us, where it becomes not so much him answering us, but us answering him. And I think that's what we're going to experience a little bit this morning in our passage, Will those who are saved be few? It might not be a bad question, but as we'll see, it's not really the question that Jesus wants to answer. You see, asking the question might say more about us and how we relate to God than it says about God and how he relates to us. And so one pastor, he said it this way, that Jesus, he needs to move us from speculative and theoretical to personal and practical. That Jesus, he needs to move us from speculation and theory to personal and practical. And what we'll see this morning is that Jesus, he flips the question. You see, what he does answer is actually much more for our good than maybe the question we have. Because more than understanding the, the success of salvation, Jesus wants us to understand the substance. More than seeing the greatness of salvation, He wants us to see the grace. And so let's look at how Jesus answers this question. We're going to be uh, working through our passage really with two main ideas, two points. One, that salvation is surprisingly hard. And two, salvation is surprisingly gracious. So first, salvation is surprisingly hard. Look back down to the passage with me in verse 22. We join Jesus as he's teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. 
And if you know anything about Jesus, you probably know that this is the, really the climax of his life and especially his death. This is the climax of his ministry, and it's the climax of the crowd's expectation for him that if he's going to be the king, then Jerusalem is the place to be and to make it happen. And so in light of this growing intensity, Jesus gets a question in verse 23. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? We don't know exactly why this person's asking the question or how they're feeling about the dilemma. Maybe they're proud to be part of the few. Or maybe they were expecting more and feeling a bit disappointed. But what we do know, and this is what we'll see from Jesus' answer, is that while they were worried about the success of his saving mission, they were dangerously close to missing the substance. Because did you notice that they ask, how many? And Jesus answered, how hard? Look down, verse 23. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. If you connect the dots between the question and the way Jesus answers, what I think we find is that the question was concerned about who else might be saved. The someone asking the question thought it was an easy assumption, at least, that they were in. They asked if there would be few, and Jesus answered, strive to enter. The implied danger is that they may not make it in. You see, salvation is surprisingly hard. It seems as though that there's a danger that whether we're feeling the few and the proud or the few and the disappointed, that we might be misunderstanding and thinking that salvation is easy. Proud to be in, because of course God would want to save people like us. A relatively easy choice. Or disappointed that there aren't more in. Because, of course, it would be easy for God to save more. But Jesus says it's surprisingly hard. So really three ways this comes out in our passage in this chapter. Salvation is surprisingly hard because everyone needs it. Because close enough isn't good enough. And there's only one way to get it. And so first, salvation is hard because everyone needs it. You see, the question is about whether few will be saved, but Jesus, he flips the perspective to the many who need to be saved. And so if we're just working with the, the picture, the illustration that Jesus is using, and in verse 24, he describes a narrow door, and then in verse 25, it adds that that door is an entryway into the master's house. And so it's a pretty basic picture. It's God's house and not ours, and so naturally we're on the outside. Even if we might be described as neighbors, it's still not our house. And if you put that kind of in the bigger picture of the, the Bible, the bigger story, it goes like this, that everyone, because of sin, no longer has a demand on life with God, on the outside. Salvation, life with God, then, is a big task. It's a hard thing, because naturally everyone would be on the outside looking in. And if that seems a little hard for us to accept that everyone would need to be saved, Jesus has an illustration for us. I don't know if you're going to like it. If you look back up at the top of the chapter, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, Jesus' illustration is about death. Chapter 13, verse 1 through 5, this is what he says. He says, There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, Jesus, answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? 
No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, our chapter, it begins with these two tragedies, one natural, kind of a natural disaster, and the other human, really Pilate doing a murderous thing. And the question that Jesus has posed is, why do bad things happen? That's a question we can all relate to, I think. Their assumption is that it must have been because they were worse sinners. They were bad people. I think our assumption is often the opposite, that we often assume that really no one deserves to suffer. But it's kind of the same question, why do bad things happen? And Jesus, he refuses to answer the question. He just says flatly, no. You see, it's not often our place to connect particular suffering with particular sin. It's the wrong question. And that's actually really good to be free from that type of thinking. But Jesus, he switches the question and he turns it around and he says, instead of worrying about the particular tragic or public event, we all have to worry about the impending personal event, the tragedy of our own death. You see, for Jesus, tragedy and suffering, it points to the bigger issue. Death is coming for us all. See, there's the illustration. Who needs to be saved? Everyone. And we might be a little uncomfortable with Jesus talking in this way, but we can't really debate the practicality of it, that eventually we all have to face death. And death and how we handle it, it's one of the biggest questions of life. And whether we find our answers from Christianity or from somewhere else, how we view death drastically affects how we live. So remember Jesus' view of death. He views death as the result of sin, and so it's not the way it should be. Something's wrong. And so you can think of it this way. Imagine sin as kind of turning away. And so if we were created to be in relationship with God, kind of face-to-face, knowing each other, being close, sin is the attitude and the action of turning away from him, not your way, my way. And so Jesus says these people, they're not necessarily worse sinners because this tragedy happened, but they, like us, were living in a world full of sin and needing saving. We're all in the mess together. And the even worse that Jesus warns about, it's dying in this life, only to face an eternity of death, separated from God, facing judgment. And so what's the solution? Well, he says it there, repent. It's this idea of turning back. So no longer my way, but God's your way, to be known and to know him. You see, salvation, it's incredibly hard, surprisingly hard, because everyone needs it. Like death and taxes, no matter how good we are, there's no escaping it. But Jesus goes on, and this comes up back in our passage, that salvation, it's surprisingly hard because close enough isn't good enough. I wonder if you know this expression. It's a dad expression. And so either you have used it yourself or maybe you heard your dad use it, that close only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes. I never really got why that expression was used. You know, kids don't play horseshoes and thankfully don't play hand grenades either. But That's kind of what we have here, that close enough is not good enough. And so in our story, Jesus, he imagines a day when everyone realizes that they want to be saved. They want to go into God's house. But it'll be too late. 
People will seek to enter. They'll realize that life in this sinful world, apart from God, clearly has no future. It's not working. But they had neglected to enter through the door. Well, how would that happen? Well, it seems as though either they assumed they were already in, or they assumed that, of course, they would be let in. And in both cases, I think the problem is the same. They thought it would be easy. And so, in the words of Jesus, they didn't strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, Jesus, he's not talking um, salvation by works here. He's not saying that if you try hard enough, you can earn your way in. But rather, he's warning against entitlement of thinking it's going to be easy, either for yourself or for others. And so, when you hear strive, I want you to think of the word agonize. Agonize, not like you're in pain, but that you're very earnest. And so, imagine the situation you have a ticket to a great concert. Maybe it's Taylor Swift, the heiress tour, you have the ticket. If you do and then you're on your way, you're not thinking, I'll just get there when I get there. You know, T-Swift will wait for me. You see, no, that's not how it works. When you have that ticket, there is an urgency, a press to get in. And if you've ever been to an event like that, you know, it's a mass of people pushing and agonizing to make it through those small security gates. That's what we have here. It's not an issue of works, but of awareness and desire. It's not a problem of the few being worthy or God saving only a few. The problem is the many who won't care, who will fail to enter. Jesus, he describes how many who have overlooked the door for a while, but then they eventually decide it was time. Look down again in verse 24. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And so what was the issue here? And we can have really two possibilities. One, people thought that they had plenty of time. Plenty of time, and so something else always took priority. They had to get their career going, had to get their family settled, had to have a bit of a fun for a while. Or maybe they thought that since they were around the master in the same neighborhood, even, of course they would be let in. You see, Jesus says salvation, it's surprisingly hard because there's this danger of taking it for granted that's there for the insider and the outsider. It's like this guy asking the question, you can assume you're already in and so no need to strive. It's an easy thing to be saved. Or maybe like the crowd, you can think you're close enough and so no need to change. I think these are common confusions even in our day. See, we can often assume we're already in. We're good people. You've probably heard this, but there's really three tricks we use to convince ourselves that we're good. We do some of the good. We don't do the really bad, and we're better than them. With those three, you can do a lot of convincing. Do some of the good, don't do the really bad, and do be better than them. Or you can assume you're close enough, maybe not a Christian, but certainly neighbors with God, right next door. Sometimes we think even just living in God's world is enough. Of course, he would let us in. Or we think we could find our own way, but go to the same place. Or even better, maybe living around the church. We may not take it too seriously, but we show up every now and then. We're doing the right things. But Jesus has a warning. 
He says salvation is surprisingly hard. Everyone needs it, but many are slow to prioritize it. And close enough isn't good enough. And thirdly, salvation is surprisingly hard because there's only one way in. You see in this picture, the master, he does have a door, but it's only one, and it's described as narrow. Only one because there's not many ways in. And so you probably know the expression, all roads lead to Rome. A lot of people think of that when it comes to God. All religions lead to God. But Jesus says, no, there's only one door. And it's narrow. It's probably not meant to describe kind of a limited flow. And so imagine the picture of the two like overly muscular guys trying to get through the doorway at the same time. Okay, that's not the picture here, I don't think. I think it's narrow instead because there's no flexibility with the way in. It's not wide. There's not plenty of room to rush. Salvation isn't something that's just going to happen, like going with the flow, carried along with the masses. It's not like how we treat GPS, right? You put in the end destination, and however it takes you is fine. That's often how we treat our relationship with God. But Jesus says, no, there's one door, and the door is narrow. Only one way in. And so to get us started here, as we think about this question of the few or the many, Jesus points out that we might be missing the point. We might be thinking salvation is easy. And so a bit of a surprise here, that salvation is surprisingly hard. But despite that, despite that warning, I want us to to see how beautifully gracious Jesus' invitation is. Because although salvation is surprisingly hard, Salvation is also surprisingly gracious. This is our second point here, that salvation is surprisingly gracious, that Jesus wants people to know that God's invitation is there. It's gracious and amazing, so don't stay away. So look, notice the surprising grace of the invitation, that there is a door and the door is open. There is a door and the door is open. The door is narrow, but yet who is invited in? All. I wonder if you caught the subtle transition from verses 23 to 24. You see the question, it's posed by someone. It's probably someone who was already following Jesus, who would consider themselves his disciple, an insider. But Jesus, the answer and the invitation then goes to them, really to the crowd, to anyone who would listen. It's this combination that Christianity is the most inclusive, exclusive grace. Only one way, but open to all. And it's one of the great ironies and kind of potential tragedies of this section is that while this someone is wondering if salvation will be all that effective, what is Jesus doing? He's already set his eyes and his feet towards Jerusalem to open the door. You see, Jesus here, he's intentional. He's methodically going to the cross. And the theoretical question he gets is, will this really be all that effective? There's this great contrast between this questioner's concern about quantity, perhaps tinged with some pride or disappointment. It's in stark contrast to Jesus' concern on his journey to the cross, which is joy. Hebrews 12, it describes it this way, that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, it was for joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
You see this questioner, he's wondering, if is, is it going to work? Perhaps feeling a little shame that there aren't more. And Jesus, despising the shame, going to the cross, does it for joy. You see, in that way, Jesus is the door. Or think about the picture of the turning away. If we have lived our lives this way, ignoring God, our way, not his way, Jesus came out to turn us around, to open the door, to actually pay the price himself. And so Jesus has an incredibly gracious invitation that the door is open and the time is now. He gives it to us straight. Verse 25, it describes a day when, in the future when the door will be closed. Elsewhere in the Bible, that day is described individually as the day of our death. God's made it so that once we live and then die and face the judgment. Or corporately, it's that day when Jesus comes back and then it's clear that there's no life apart from God. You see, time is not unlimited. And of course, we know that in relation to our physical lives, or at least we need to know that. But Jesus wants us to know that in relation to our spiritual lives as well. But today is the day of striving to enter. The door is open, and so are we eager to enter? Salvation might be surprisingly hard, but what God requires of us is surprisingly gracious. It's simple and straightforward. I've been watching this new series, the Percy Jackson series on Disney Plus with my kids. I'm sure great books, great series, but it's striking in the series. It's a, a, a story about kind of interacting with the Greek gods, and it's striking how fickle and unknown they are. You can't really know what they want, what they're doing, what they demand. And that's been one of the stories of other religions around all of history, that when it comes to other gods, we are in such a, a state of not knowing what to do. But yet Jesus is so straightforward you see, it's a surprising grace of the open invitation, but also the surprising grace of the requirement for entry. And as we think of this, I just want us to acknowledge together that really all of us would have a requirement for entry. All of us would draw the line somewhere. And so imagine the situation that you have the chance to remake the world and to start fresh. Maybe like those people who, those movies where you select people who will be the survivors or who will populate the new planet. Who do you include? I bet you'll draw a line. You see, if you include everyone, the new world will probably be a lot like this one. And so who do you, who do you include? Where do you draw the line? You know, who we save probably wouldn't be very surprising at all. We would save those we know and pass over those we don't. We would include the good, exclude the bad. We would include the useful and the talented and exclude those who are less. But here's the surprising grace of what salvation that Jesus brings. Where does he draw the line between those who will enter and those who will not? The line is really the door. And Jesus, he's told us what we need to do to enter. It's there in that earlier story about death. He called it repentance. It's changing our minds, not our way, but turning back to God. Look at how this works in our passage. Look down again in verse 26. For these people who would want to enter but miss out, this is what Jesus says, they will say to him, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. 
You see, it seems the situation is that these people, they were close enough to share a meal and to hear Jesus' teaching, but they never really turned back to be known by God. And so if you think about the context here, who these people were, Jesus is really talking first about kind of first century Israel. In that way, they had all the heritage. You see, in verse 28, they had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. See, they had it all, but yet they didn't know the master. In fact, Jesus, he calls them workers of evil. There's a surprise. You don't want that surprise at the end of your life. You see, the danger apparently is that we can be close enough to know, but not be known. Close enough to know, but not be known. Do you realize the difference? Someone has said it this way, that this is not about geographical proximity, but relational closeness. That's why Jesus described it as repentance of, of we need to draw near to Jesus so that he would know us personally and fully, that we would turn back and our trust ourselves to him. One example is confession. That's part of why we do it every week. That's our chance to acknowledge and to once again be known and accepted by God. Do you strive for that? For Jesus to know you? You see, there's the striving and the agonizing. It's not about works. It's about our need to be known and accepted. Who else could know you and love you? Who else could know everything? Everything. And forgive it all. You see, it's a surprising grace here. It's what King David, he writes in Psalm 139. It's a, a phrase that has always struck me. He says, search me and know me. A dangerous prayer. But it's a prayer written by someone who desperately needed God to declare him okay. And look how gracious Jesus is towards this type of desperate need. In verse 29, he says, People will come from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. You see, those in the immediate neighborhood, they might have neglected and overlooked God's salvation. The door, it might be narrow, but yet it will be wide enough and close enough that people from four corners of the earth will stream in. And notice that they stream in not to be second-class citizens, not to be late in the game, not to be stuck in the waiting room or standing room only. Where are they? They will enter to recline at the master's table. We don't do this anymore, but it's a picture of incredible intimacy and safety. Entered in to recline. So here's the extra surprise of Jesus' heart for people to be saved. You see, for those who wonder whether his salvation would really be enough, who might neglect it and overlook it, he says, strive to enter, even as he would strive to enter Jerusalem. And even for those who would refuse, he wishes they would repent. He wishes they would change. The next section in this chapter, I'm just going to read it for you. We're not preaching the entire chapter, just the beginning, the middle, and a little bit at the end here. At the end of the chapter here in Luke 13, verse 31, some Pharisees, they come and they say to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. The time's coming, Jesus. Your death is coming. Verse 32, and he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood on her wings, and you are not willing. You see, once again, it's someone who's questioning Jesus' mission. He says, they say, Jesus, they're after you. They're out to get you. And Jesus says, I know. And it seems like they're always like that. But even as he goes to the cross, what is his posture towards them, towards the sinner, the outsider, the ones turned away from God, the workers of evil? What is his posture? He says, how often I would have gathered you in. Like children, like a hen gathering her brood. If only you were willing. You see, the question of few or many, it probably misses out the more important question of the surprising graciousness of Jesus' heart. That even if you're so close that in pride you're taking him for granted, or you feel like you're so far away that to come to God would be like a journey from the east to the west, Jesus looks at people like that and he says, strive to enter. The door is open. And so will the number of people saved in New Haven or in Norwalk be few? Probably the wrong question to ask. What would be the application if God had given us a number? Instead, here's some application, just two things as we take away. Strive and surprise. First, strive. You see, salvation is a surprisingly hard thing. But the door has been opened, and now that Jesus has been lifted up, he would gather all to himself. And so we strive to enter. We're eager for it. We would agonize about it. You see, it's not a small thing to enter into God's kingdom. And so we agonize for ourselves and for others. You see, we, sometimes we might need to spend less time agonizing about these big theoretical questions like, will God save enough? And instead agonize about ourselves and those around us making us in. You see, once you know the grace of Jesus that would gather people in and accept them, then we would desperately want to recline at his side. Like the psalmist, we would say, search me and know me. Assure me that we are okay. Feed us from your table. And so we strive. But also we have surprise. You see, we should be prepared for the heartache of those who might seem so close but yet refuse. You see, it's a big surprise where God would draw the line. Not between the good and the bad. Not between the religious and the secular. Not between the insider and the out. Just one line, the line of the door of the cross. And so be prepared for the surprise of amazing stories of those who seem so far but yet rush in to recline at the side of God. Be surprised that he has invited you in. Be surprised by each and every person who would gather with you. I want you to think about the end of the, some of these classic stories like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. Both end kind of with this picture of the characters coming together at the end with great shock and surprise that they've made it. And so if you watch the Lord of the Ring movies, unfortunately it was done pretty poorly with the whole jumping on the bed scene. But actually it's this picture of great joy that somehow, against all odds, they've made it back. And usually there's this recounting of the story, how each character somehow made it through. You see, there's an incredible surprise and joy. That's what our testimonies are. 
You see, a church is a full experience of joyful surprise that we get to be here. Really, it starts by being honest and realistic about ourselves. It is no easy thing for you to be saved. It's no small thing that God has kept me all these years. Even this morning, what a surprising thing that all of us who would draw near to Jesus would be allowed to be in this place where God would pour out his amazing grace to save us and keep us until the end. Would we be surprised by that joy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that if we have felt your correction, you would do it gently for our good. Father, we pray that we would hear your encouragement, that we would be surprised by the joy of being invited in. Would you make our churches places where we would agonize to know you, to be known by you, and we would have shocking joy at the surprise of being accepted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.